Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm here with Bruce Kelly, my colleague as always. How you doing, Bruce? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing great. Another beautiful September day, last day of September here as we record this. Uh, we have a guest this week to talk about alternative investments, Steve Skanky from Keel Points. He's going to introduce himself in a second here, but first I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Alternative Investment Exchange, also known as AIX. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Ha- thanks for having me on, uh, uh, Jeff and Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Keel Point? You're the chief economic advisor there, so I'm assuming you uh, probably know what's going on, right? Well, I do pay a lot of attention to uh, economics and markets and uh, geopolitical events. Uh, uh, as you may know, I, I, I started my work career in Washington in government uh, on the National Security Council and then Treasury and economic policy. Uh, and since I left government, I've, I've been in finance and investments and uh, spent a lot of time in alternatives and private investments. Uh, came to Keel Point in 2006 to build out the investment side uh, and was the chief investment officer, chief investment strategist. And uh, now I'm able to concentrate mostly on uh, economics, new investment opportunities, strategies, uh, and uh, where we can find uh, uh, opportunities to take advantage of and dangers to uh, protect against. Okay. Well, as you know, our audience is uh, financial advisors, RIAs, looking for some uh, input. I wrote a cover story recently that I in, that you were involved in uh, talking about alternatives and uh, some of the things that I thought were interesting that, that came up as a theme in the story was uh, that the whole 60-40 model portfolio or traditional portfolio is more like a 70-30 because of what you're getting in fixed income. But we want to talk about alternatives here and uh, why alternatives are appear to be making more and more sense. Is that what you're seeing? Absolutely, Jeff. Uh, as uh, Just as you say, as bond markets uh, and the fixed income space generally has become more challenging in terms of uh, generating a return and protecting against uh, rising interest rates. Uh, to to provide that ballast in portfolios, we've uh, we've had to look beyond just traditional fixed income and and see what defensive alternatives, bond-like alternatives, uh, we can include in portfolios to uh, to pick up that uh, that gap. Let's talk about that. We're, we're... First of all, I said it. I laid out the premise of a seventy thirty as opposed to a sixty forty. Like seventy thirty is the new sixty forty, and you didn't dispute that. So I'm going to take that as an as a you agreeing with me. Um, do, do you? Uh, I mean, if you're adding alts to that mix, whether it's sixty forty, seventy thirty, or whatever, what do you take from to make room for alternatives? We take from both the uh, the equity risk assets and the uh, fixed income uh, defensive assets, uh, and and we we figure about fifteen uh, percent in alternatives on both sides of uh, that scale. So on the I'm sorry, uh, Steve. The, how much? Uh, fifteen in each. So altogether, about thirty percent in alternatives. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. And uh, let's let's talk about what you mean by alternatives, because that's a broad term that yes. we in let's the financial media, terms here. Yeah, gentlemen. we're 
we're we're guilty of as anyone in the financial <laughs> media of uh, overgeneralizing. So let's let's hear your what you're talking about in terms of strategies when you when you talk about alternatives. Well, broadly, uh, we see alternatives as uh, pretty much anything out, outside the bounds of traditional uh, equities and uh, publicly traded uh, equity type investments. So publicly traded real estate, ETFs, uh, uh, mutual funds, uh, as well as stocks. And on the, uh, the fixed income side, uh, uh, anything outside of traditional bonds. So, so on the equity side, we'd see hedge funds, quantitative equity, private equity, venture capital, private real estate, uh, some of the tactical strategies, structured product, option strategies. Um, on the, the defensive side, uh, also hedge funds. Some of the, uh, the market neutral, uh, global macro, private credit, direct lending, insurance linked securities that, uh, that show up in, uh, in some of the structures uh, like interval funds, uh, registered investment companies, which allow them to be available to um, lower investment amount uh, investors. Some of those things sound like uh, products and strategies that would be restricted to accredited and qualified investors. Qualified right? investors really are in our space, I think, Jeff. A well, lot of the advisors yeah. work with the qualified type of investor who would be going into a into one of those closed end type of funds. Well, yeah, accredited and qualified, but right. Though, but you advisors could also work with people that don't meet those criteria. Yes. So, so Steve, where do you, how do you manage that? Or how's a financial advisor supposed to manage that? Well, when, when I, when I came into the business, uh, all of my clients were, were qualified purchasers. They were or qualified institutional buyers, ultra high net worth, uh, individuals, institutions, families, uh, sovereign wealth funds. And, and so the range of, of these alternatives, uh, was, was very broad. Uh, when I came to Keel Point, uh, one of my uh, uh, first goals was to see how we could fit those same strategies into individuals with uh, smaller investable net worth. Uh, initially, all qualified purchasers, uh, but then also uh, accredited investors. Uh, when the liquid alts came along uh, in the form of mutual funds, that then uh, allowed the mass affluent uh, also to be participating. Uh, and, and likewise, when, when well, RICS, the registered investment companies, uh, you, you needed to be a, uh, an accredited investor uh, for, for those. But now in, in some of the mutual funds, uh, uh, hedged equity strategies, tactical strategies, uh, those are available for, uh, for non-accredited investors as well. Now, uh, to be fair about that, uh, we're always very careful to make sure that, uh, that the people that we're putting into these strategies uh, understand what they are and, uh, and what we're doing for them. So to have a non-accredited investor in one of these, uh, it's more likely to be the case that it's uh, investments for children or children's trusts 
that would meet the uh, the SEC requirement, but uh, with not what we think of a, a, a as a traditional ultra high net worth investor. I hear you. Um, what let's you you mentioned liquid alternatives. Those are well mutual funds, really. right? Mutual funds and ETFs. Uh, what those are available to anyone. Can you, are you getting the same bang for your buck out of a out of a registered mutual fund or ETF, whether it's it's designed for enhanced performance or risk mitigation, as you would from a, a kind of a true, pure alternative strategy like a hedge fund or a private equity fund? Well, typically not, uh, Jeff, because uh, uh, a lot of these uh, alternative strategies rely on and capitalize on, you know, capturing an illiquidity premium. Mm hmm. Some of the managers, uh, when Liquid Alts first came out, were somewhat successful in doing that when what they had done was to take a, uh, an illiquid uh, hedge fund or, or, or something like that uh, and create a, a liquid version uh, in a way that uh, allowed them better to, uh, to manage uh, the liquidity side of it. That, that struggled and in many cases just didn't work well. So we saw then the uh, advent of these interval funds where they're liquid quarterly, but, uh, but always have a redemption gate if there's some issue in the market. Uh, so the, the answer to your, your, your general point is, uh, uh, yes, it's hard for the ETF and mutual fund versions of these strategies to capture the same level of returns simply because you're not able to capture effectively the, the, the premium for not being liquid. Mm -hmm. See, the thing I, I look at when I look at these liquid alts, I, I see them as, you know, they're, they're obviously more, uh, they're available to the masses. Um, they're generally more expensive than other actively managed mutual funds and ETFs, but they're not as expensive as, like a hedge fund or private equity strategy or something like that. But I mean, are you getting something for that in the alternative space? I mean, is it, is it kind of like a better than nothing scenario? That's been our experience when mm -hmm. we've uh, looked at some of these uh, uh, liquid strategies. Uh, it's a way to capture some part of it, but uh, but understanding that you're 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 not getting the, the full benefit because you're not capturing the the illiquidity premium. Uh, but in terms of uh, creating some defensive or mitigating uh, uh, opportunity within the, uh, the the manager's portfolio, uh, yes, uh, we capture some of that, and, and so we we do use those uh, as well. Um, it's been uh, interesting to see, even just over the last five years, some of the, uh, the hedged equity strategies uh, that are increasingly available uh, in, in truly a mutual fund format. What, what can make the case for alternatives right now? What is, what is that? Why, why is everybody talking about it right now? And I, I mean, I'm going to kind of lead you into the obvious here, but I'm thinking because you're the chief economic advisor, you're going to go a lot deeper than I could go on my own, right? Well, we'll see. Uh, you're you're pretty savvy in this, and uh, and certainly a thought leader in this space, Jeff. Uh, 
But uh, but if we just look at markets today, many many folks will say that uh, by a host of measures, equity markets are are highly priced. Some will say overvalued. Uh, whether that's true or not is is certainly open for for discussion. So even on traditional long equity exposure, if if one has a sense that uh, uh, average returns are, are going to be mean reverting and trend down over the next five years. The question is, uh, are there opportunities to enhance an augment return while reducing volatility in this period of time? That's been a belief over the last five years as well, as markets have uh, continued to perform well. Obviously, uh, 2018 was uh, not the case there. But, you know, 2019 up 30 uh, percent, uh, 2020, even with with all the uh, uh, convulsions we had uh, uh, during the year, still ended up the S&P ended up 16 and a half percent. In those markets, alternative uh, managers have a hard time uh, capturing the full market return. But there's a belief that, that that's not going to last. Uh, forever, and that markets are mean reverting, and that we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning. Um, on the fixed income side, my goodness, with with the ten-year Treasury at one and a quarter, now that's bumped up in, in the last uh, week or so, and probably will continue to do that as we wrestle with the, uh, you know, the sort of incomprehensible notion that the U.S. Treasury might default. On, uh, on U.S. government debt, that, 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 that creates a, a whole lot of anxiety as to the outlook for risk-free interest rates and interest rates generally, both as the economy continues to pick up steam uh, and as some change in what has been an historically low rate of inflation for the last dozen years uh, is upon us. Uh, doesn't mean that we're going back to the, the inflation rates of the 70s and early 80s, uh, but it, it it does suggest that we're not going to see inflation in the 1.4 to 1.6% uh, annualized rate uh, that we've had for the last dozen years. Uh, and, and so it's likely to be more in the, you know, the 25 to 3.5% range. Uh, and that will have a different impact uh, on interest rates. Uh, and, and so when you look at the, the duration of the aggregate, you know, the Barclays aggregate bond index uh, being at eight, that means for every 1% increase in the interest rate, the value of your bond portfolio goes down 8% uh, if you're just investing in the ag. It's hard to get excited about being in traditional bonds or certainly in the uh, uh, in the ETF for the AG when uh, when it looks like a, a one-way uh, bet and and so people and, and Keelpoint included uh, or Keelpoint in particular are looking for how can we be diversified in the bond alternative space to uh, ride through some of that and, and not have to bear the downdraft that's going to come from a rising interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. Bruce, any anything for for Steve? Well, I think that you know we've had Jeff, you know, lots of people on here right in the past few months talk about uh, interest rates 
and their likelihood of going up right over time uh, and what that means to people's bond portfolios. So I can totally understand the, um, uh, you know, the impact or significance of having some kind of alternative um, strategy in your portfolio. Um, but what I'm always wary of, as you know, and Steve probably doesn't know, is this the, the kind of marketing and the hype behind um, these types of strategies. I remember, you know, after the credit crisis, Jeff, wasn't it like in 2010 or 2011 that, you know, the mutual fund industry was really pushing long short funds and mm-hmm. what, what was what were the other th- other things, swap funds and all these, all these different kinds of funds. And they really didn't, you know, the equity markets continued to perform very well uh, intermittently. I don't remember the year by year, you know, returns of the S&P 500, but, you know, for the most part, they were going up and these other types of funds were just kind of stagnant. So um, I, I guess for Steve, you know, why should I have if I'm an advisor or if I'm a client and I have $500,000 in my retirement account, why should I be thinking of, you know, an interval fund right now that's heavily weighted towards real estate as opposed to just continuing to invest my dividends in the S&P 500? You know, what's the, what's the investment urgency or thesis, I guess, that you, if you, and if you've covered it already, I apologize for missing it. It's a great question. And as as we know, and, and Jeff, as you mentioned in your article, you know, one of the things always to be wary of in these alternative is, alternatives is that uh, as they try to characterize themselves as special, that that often also includes um, higher fees. Right. And some of these... Uh, and brokers like to sell things with high fees, you know? That, that certainly can happen. Uh, um we're, we've always been wary of fees, and, and we'll just just stay away from a manager or a strategy if, if the fees uh, just don't make sense. Uh, right. Because uh, yeah, they're they're showing you returns instead of fees, but uh, it, it it doesn't take long. And you know, we saw this in, in managed futures a few years ago, where where a right. good part of their their fees were sort of covered by the five or six percent that they were earning on treasuries. But when, when, when that went away, you had those fees right there in front of you. Uh, they were struggling to, to make returns that even cover their fees. So so that's always an important consideration. Uh, you know, w- one of the things always to keep in mind about this uh, is your uh, is your time horizon. We have found that in the the equity space, uh, some of the alternatives really allow us to have broader diversification with some downside protection to smooth the ride. Um, so, so we might have a, a quantitative equity strategy uh, that's, that's readily available that really has a, a 60-40 uh, benchmark. So they're, they're, they're capturing that risk mitigation within the strategy. Uh, and if it makes sense to us, that's that can always be a nice building block in, uh, in portfolio construction. Our principal focus right now is on the, the defensive alternatives. Because while any of us, if we're putting money 
in a retirement program or to save for our newborn's college education, we have a long time horizon. And, uh, you know, we all have seen the, the, the charts that, that show, well, on the equity uh, space of things in one year, it, the, the market can range from like minus 39 to, to plus 55. When you get out to rolling five-year periods, uh, the, the annualized or the average downside is not more than 3%. And, and when you get out to 10-year rolling periods, it's 1%. Uh, and, and so you're, you're allowing time to take care of the volatility uh, normalization for you. But when you're, you're looking at coming into retirement and you're, you're, you're trying to line up money to be available as you need to spend it and don't want to get caught in the middle of an equity market uh, drawdown and have to sell things uh, uh, while they're impaired, albeit temporarily uh, in most cases, then you're looking for how do I replace that, uh, that bond, what, what bonds are supposed to do in my portfolio. And, and that's, where, that's where we find them to be uh, more important and actually a bigger portion of that allocation. You know, on the, the equity side, on a 60-40 portfolio, out of the 60, 15% we would see as alternatives. On the fixed income side or the defensive side, out of a 40% allocation, we would see 15 of that being in alternatives. And right now in the current interest rate market, market, Five percent being in cash, uh, just just simply to avoid getting punished on a loss of that, a loss in value of what you're holding for for next year's spending. You know the the opportunities in the alt side there on the defensive side are actually fairly robust, uh, and uh, our experience has been in putting together portfolios. Uh, including our model portfolios, is that, uh, you know, with a 2 or 3 or 4% allocation to an alternative strategy that has low volatility, low correlation to uh, both fixed income and uh, equity spaces, that picking up uh, a 5 or 6 or 7% annualized rate of return in an environment where we don't we don't believe that at least over the next couple of years that traditional fixed income will even be able to uh, to, to say positive with its coupon about well, a positive coupon but but the loss in uh, in value as a result of rising interest rates that will just make that hard and uh, so the 20% that we would have in fixed income uh, is going to be in laddered strategies and to be honest, in money that we don't think will need to be used over the the next uh, uh, two to three years. And Steve, are you mentioning any managers uh, today, or, or uh, no? Unfortunately, uh, uh, no? Bruce, uh, I, I really I can't do that. Okay, that's that's fine. We have to ask the question. And then one just one last thing. I think I'd be remiss, Jeff, if I didn't ask Steve. I mean, I saw his. Um, CV up on the the website, uh, the firm's website, and boy, you worked for what five, four administrations? Yeah, and... four presidents. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was in four different administrations. At the at the at the Treasury or the Fed? Well, at the White House National Security Council under 
presidents Nixon and Ford, uh, and at the Treasury under President Carter, and then uh, uh, for my last couple of years, uh, uh, back split between the White House and Treasury uh, under President Reagan. Uh, uh, originally, I was on national security policy, and then I went to uh, uh, economic uh, policy and, and finished up uh, uh, being responsible for the implementation of, of Reaganomics. Well, you, you must have been, what, like 11 or 12, Steve, when you started? In, in well, the a little bit more loud. than that, but... Uh, but you were uh, young. But you I, must have been a young in, man. Yeah, there. I was uh, I was still in college when I, I started working on the uh, uh, National Security Council staff uh, as a research uh, clerk. When you when you watch what's happened in, in Washington over the past, you know, 10 or 20 years, and you compare it to your time there... What is just an impression or two that you have? Well, it's different. Uh, it's it's hard to know what to attribute it uh, the differences all to, but I do believe that twenty four seven media coming at us. Uh, right, the you know, cable news cycle they call it. Right, it, exactly uh, makes it harder. Unfortunately, or, we reporters always have to be talking or writing about stuff, Steve. And, you know? and, and we appreciate so. that, Bruce. Uh, we, <laughs> we depend on that. Uh, but, it's, but it's made it harder for legislators uh, to, to, to represent uh, more broadly the interests that they think that their constituents have um, and uh, hew more to a, a uh, party line and uh, partisan positions. Uh, it, that's just my observation. Uh, right. we, we still elect good people. It's just that uh, uh, there is so much more under a microscope uh, than uh, what they were, I'll, I'll just say, uh, pre-1990 or, 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 or 93, maybe, would be right. a, a, a turning point uh, the other thing is that uh, uh, even presidents that weren't well liked were, were still viewed as statesmen. Uh, I, I'd like to believe that that's still the case. Uh, we certainly, over the last uh, twenty years, have had some things that uh, create doubt about that. Um, but uh, it, it's more challenging. I will say, though, on the debt limit, which is just roaring back right now. We haven't had to deal with that uh, quite this way for a long time. But back when I was uh, both at the White House and at the Treasury, uh, you know, that would come up one or two times a year. And oh, my goodness, uh, what a headache and heartache that was to, uh, uh, to get worked out when all it is is basically authorizing the borrowing the money that you need to uh, cover what you've already spent. And uh, as, as you guys probably know, the, uh, the Congress has required, the, uh, has taken away from the president the ability not to spend money that they've authorized and appropriated. So it's not like they have any choice to spend it. But when they spend it, they've, they've got to pay for it. Uh, and, and that means... Uh, to the extent that tax revenues don't cover it, they have to borrow. Uh, there is no mystery to how much needs to be borrowed and what that will do vis-a-vis -vis the debt limit. And yet, 
uh, once again, after some respite over the years, we're, we're back facing that right now. Uh, and if you look at what's going on in, you know, in, in financial markets, uh, this, this debt limit uh, uh, uncertainty is contributing to uh, uh, part, at least part of the uncertainty in the market. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Hey, Steve, what, on that issue, I wanted to ask you just a couple minutes about some of the risk out there in the markets right now. I mean, and, and right. getting back to Bruce's question a few minutes ago about, you know, it was a good point that, you know, after the, the financial crisis, you saw a lot of these firms come out with and strategies and a lot of advisors were going for these diversified, you know, hedging strategies, which they should have been focused on. I guess leading up to two thousand in two thousand five or two thousand six, right. you know, right? And and, so. and that's why I'm so kind of interested and impressed with what I'm seeing now with with this being a roaring and, and seemingly resilient stock market, and people are still people like yourself, Steve, are talking about alternatives as opposed to in, in saying, yeah, this is things look okay, <laughs> but you know, there's nothing wrong with maybe a little bit of risk mitigation here and there, and so. Yeah, I want to ask you about, I mean, why is, why are things looking so strong? Even this week when people are talking about, you know, some kind of a debt limit default or something. And, you know, we've got inflation, which was transitory a year ago. Now it seems real. And even, I mean, I was talking to some people last week and, and nobody could think of inflation being under 4% even a year from now. That doesn't sound like transitory to me, but as Lizanne Saunders said when she, we had her on the show, you know, all inflation is transitory. It's just how long is it going to take for the transition? <laughs> how yeah. long is the trip, man? Yeah. Right, so, right. So, I mean, what are what are some of the? I mean, first of all, what are the risks, and why isn't the market responding to it? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. Uh, I mean, first I'll say that the, the debate over inflation uh, really really is polarizing into two camps. Uh, there, there's one camp that, that thinks that we're headed back to what, what we experienced in the 70s, uh, which was a very different set of uh, fundamental uh, forces. Uh, and, and those that, that think it's uh, going to continue to be dead. Uh, and I think the reality is that, that neither one of those is is where we end up. It's just more nuanced. nuanced uh, um, and it depends a little bit on what the consumer does, uh, uh, what COVID does, how we get supply chains going again. Um, uh, right now, the uh, uh, consumer balance sheets in the United States are, are probably better than they've uh, been, certainly in uh, my lifetime. The, uh, the, the, the saving, the just what the stock market is, uh, has done over the last several years, uh, uh, has done a lot for, for balance sheets. The uh, supplemental payments uh, during the uh, uh, COVID from the CARES Act, the money that got put into the economy, uh, uh, what was done for companies and owners and employees. Uh, consumers have money. Uh, they easily can spend. Some of them decide not to go back into the marketplace uh, because they still have problems in caring for their children either getting them into schools where they have confidence about their safety, into daycare, uh, where, where there's an increasingly limited supply of that available. And uh, uh, so where that ends up going does have a big impact on economic growth. But even if we just look at what we're likely to get 
this year, uh, it's, it's quite likely that we're going to see third quarter economic growth. Uh, uh, with, you know, third quarter was just ending, uh, probably in the range of, uh, of five and a half to six percent. Uh, and as a result, fourth quarter economic growth, probably also in the range of, of, of 6%. Uh, that, that's tremendously powerful for uh, uh, what happens in, uh, in businesses, and, and, and albeit bifurcated in favor of the larger companies at the expense of uh, smaller companies, uh, uh, that just drives revenue and corporate earnings. Uh, when, when we saw the, the stock market up 30% and then 16.5% and a few weeks ago it was up 20% for, for the year, I mean, you, you just scratch your head and, and say, how is that sustainable? But look at where corporate earnings were. S&P earnings uh, were up uh, 50% in the first quarter, earnings per share, 50% uh, in the first quarter, 90% in the second quarter. Uh, look to be in the 30 to 50 percent in the uh, the third quarter, uh, yet TBD, of course. But uh, uh, that has brought down what was a which what was a high price earnings multiple. It was the S and P price earnings multiple was up around 34 uh, percent, and that that's come back down to to about uh, 26 or 27 percent, maybe even a little bit less with uh, uh, the uh, the stock market uh, trying off a little bit uh, just in the last week. But Steve, th those are those are the kinds of annual annualized returns that we saw in the 1990s, right? You're What's talking that? 30, 15, 20. I mean, consecutive years. I mean, yeah, we we, we saw that at the end of the 90s. Uh, it, it actually looked like a bubble <laughs> at the end of the 90s, and, right. and it and it turned out that it was, but. Uh, the outlook really is is quite positive uh, for the next year. Well, that's probably a good place to leave it because uh, we we went through a lot of things that people are going to have to scratch their heads about, and uh, eh, not so much. We got smart people listening to us yeah. there, Jeff. You know? I know, but they're they've got some thought. They got some things to think about now. Ah, that's it. So so uh, <laughs> so we'll we'll leave it with a on a on a high note that Steve sees uh, sees a positive outlook and. Uh, he thinks uh, we should uh, stay in the market, but maybe diversify a little bit, right? I think that's a, a fair assessment. Okay. Well, thank you very much for, for stopping by and shedding some light on these things for us, Steve. Well, thanks for having me in. I appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Imagine a place where investing in alternatives is as simple as buying an ETF or mutual fund. The folks at AIX imagined such a place, but they didn't stop there. They built it. AIX is a digital platform that completely reinvents how we buy, own, and sell alternatives. With AIX, you can easily track the progress of each investment, extract critical learnings, and confidently participate in the rapidly growing alts marketplace. By replacing the paper-based process with a point-and-click experience, AIX streamlines the investing process for all involved. From wealth managers and asset managers to custodians, transfer agents, fund administrators, AIX ensures everyone is connected, helping to enhance the transparency, mitigate risk, and stop errors before they start. It's a whole new world of alternatives. 
one where the entire alts industry can continue to grow and thrive. AIX, enter an alternatives universe. Visit AIXplatform.com to learn more. Hello again, everybody. We're back. Uh, this is Bruce. Um, just wanted to mention here at the end of the podcast, um, a recent RIA deal that really caught our attention at Investment News, which I think is really an interesting type of acquisition um, and, and merger, really more of a purely merger and kind of recapitalization play for RIAs uh, that's going to lead eventually to a, a publicly uh, traded group of RIAs uh, under the um, under the organization of a SPAC, which is a special purpose acquisition uh, company, which has been a real investment darling of the pandemic. They're also known as Blank Check Corp. So, um, Jeff, I just wanted to throw some things out at you here. Mm-hmm. Tiedemann Advisors, and I've, I've spoken to Michael Tiedemann a few times over, um, over the past few years, really bright guy. They merged with a British uh, firm, Alvarium Investments Limited, which does a lot of ESG, by the way, and is global. And they have a new company, Alvarium Tiedemann Holdings. And they the, the last bit of that dance step was that they all rolled up under a SPAC Mm-hmm. Um, that was existing out there, a Cartesian Growth Corporation. And so the the, Al, the new company, Alvarium Tiedemann Holdings, by the end of you know February, March next year, is going to be a listed um, uh, company uh, on the NASDAQ. And what uh, and they, they, they're shooting for a market capitalization of $1.4 billion. And uh, what I find uh, fascinating and particularly delightful here is that, in my mind, after Focus Financial, it's the second pure kind of wealth management RIA that is going public here. And it's not a pure IPO in the sense that there's a roadshow and they sell shares and, you know, and they have their private equity people cash out of the shares into the public market and all that kind of stuff. You and I had a little back and forth about whether <laughs> this was the second uh, mm-hmm. publicly traded RIA or not or whatever. So what do you, what, what did you make of this deal or what do you, what do you, what are you thinking here? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to see another way for the wealth management space to finance them themselves so right. that they can, right. and continue this. It's all about the financing, right? This, uh, this growth mode, which seems to be the, the, top priority for especially the largest firms out there, the firms that we call aggregators, it, it seems like scale is the most important thing for some of the larger firms. And maybe that's the purpose of them. I mean, well, what we you have here is really a global firm now, right? Right. So it's a global RIA. They have offices in all the money centers. Uh, Alvarium does, has, has offices in the money centers around the world. And they uh, are heavily uh, uh, investor clients and ESG type of investments. Um, so you, you all of a sudden have kind of a global RIA. So I'm kind of very, that also raised another 150 or 160 million in capital as part of the mm-hmm. whole deal. So that's a lot, that's a decent sized war chest, right? If you add leverage to that, right? Um, yeah, that, that's... They're going to be busy in the acquisition marketplace too, man. Yeah, there. I mean, I think Focus is in eight countries. Um, uh, CI Canada, Financial, Australia, right? Yeah, and, and CI Financial is obviously in Canada, right. and the U.S. in a big way. Um, 
you know, so I don't know. I don't know the the end game on a global financial services because I, you know, there's you've got different currencies, different regulatory bodies, different languages. Um, to me, I, I don't swim in those waters, so I don't really understand what that's about. <laughs> but I, you know, I see Canada and the U.S. At least they're you know the currencies and the regulate regulators are different, right. but at least they speak the same language and they're basically doing the same thing. And there's a lot of crossover because you know, there's a lot of snowbirds and stuff like that. People that spend right. part of the year. In the no, US wealthy people go back and forth. Definitely. Right. Yeah. So, but when you want to go like super international like that, that that's, I don't know, that's a different kind of thing. And I, it just doesn't seem like uh, financial services is that generic that there can be, uh, but you know, it's, it's just getting, I don't know. I mean, you everywhere. have big Swiss UBS is a huge Swiss bank with a, that's with true. A, you're with, right. You know, 5,000 plus, you know, of the of the biggest, the most profitable financial advisors in, in the country. You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess um, when, you're, when you're building portfolios and, and, you know, charging fees for that kind of service and all the other wealth management things that go along with it, you know, wills and trusts and estate plans and things like that, you know, it, it can be, it is scalable. It, it's not can be, it is scalable. So maybe this is where it's all going. Um, I don't know. I'm, if- I'm just happy that. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just happy that uh, the document nerd in me gets to look at the eight <laughs> Ks and the quarterly reports because, you know, you get to look. That's how you know what their cash flow is, right? Right, right. What their revenues are, what the cash flow is, what the EBITDA is, and that's what how all these um, RAs are being valued right now, right? Uh-huh. How many times EBITDA am I worth, right? Yep. And that's that seems to be the name of the game. And so to have a, a to have a publicly traded another publicly traded company as a as a litmus test or as an example, you know, for the market for me that's very gratifying because then we can see where where the market is going. But I think you're 100 percent right with scale. I mean, the only way you're gonna mm-hmm. go forward is is via scale in the future. And and publicly traded in this space is is pretty rare, so it's nice to have some kind of a look into that because you don't get that from the private equity firms. They're private by design and, and they're not telling you what they're paying for these companies. And they're, you know, they're not telling you how much money they're making off those companies, but right. they're clearly hungry to be here. So that's not going away either. So this will be fun to watch. It'll be fun to see, you know, what the next SPAC strategy is. Plus SPAC <laughs> is fun to say, you know, <laughs> it, it is a, it is a fun acronym. I mean, it is one of the better ones, I think we could say. There you go. Well, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Steve Skanky. Um, We also want to say that the podcast is available and launches every Monday. We also want to thank our sponsor for the episode, AIX. Um, And I forgot to mention that Steve Skanky is from Keel Point. Uh, we also want to say hello to Stephen Lamb, our producer. And you can find the podcast, Jeff, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. Uh, you can reach out to Jeff on Twitter by uh, at Benji Ryder. Uh, my handle is at the news guy. Uh, stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.